morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Veteran newsman Dan Rather recently paid a visit to Fordham University. He was asked to speak with a classroom full of inquisitive communication and media studies students by former CBS colleague and current Fordham journalism professor Jonathan Sanders. Dan Rather avoided discussing the controversy surrounding a disputed news report involving the 2004 presidential elections that subsequently caused him to leave his long-standing job at CBS. But the former anchor and 60 Minutes contributor did share stories of growing up in Texas, his first big news story that almost ended his career and his life, and he had plenty of advice for aspiring journalists, although he offered it with extreme humbleness. I wish I had some great wisdom to impart to you this morning. I don't. For some of you may sigh, others of you may grimace, but I have no wisdom to impart to give you. Uh, the only institution of alleged higher learning from which I ever actually graduated was Sam Houston State Teachers College in Huntsville, Texas. Believe you me, it's a long way, both in physical distance and sophistication, intellectual distance from a great institution such as Fordham. Don't misunderstand me. I'm very proud to have gone to San Houston State Teachers College. When I started there, there were 900 students. There were 500 girls and 400 young men. Pretty good odds. <laughs> <laughs> and they gave me about all of the learning I was capable of absorbing at the time. But none of us who went to it, it's now a big state university, maybe 15,000. It's located in probably the poorest part of the state, in East Texas. Uh, the most, I hesitate to use the word, but if you will, backward and uh, uh, poverty-ridden part of the state. Uh, it's a longer story than worth telling. Um, that I went there believing that the only way I could get to college, the only way I could stay in college was a football scholarship. I had played in high school, not particularly well, but played. Uh, that came amiss fairly quickly. I was blessed with a very good journalism teacher, a young man named Hugh Cunningham, who's now retired in Florida. Uh, he kept me in school by getting me a, a lot of, a series of odd jobs. And one of the jobs was at uh, the local radio station. This was not a campus radio station. Campus radio stations, so far as we knew, were unknown at that time. Now Huntsville, where Sam Houston is located, is a town of about 4,000 people. Uh, they have another 1,000, the state penitentiary, main penitentiary is there. So if you want to count the prisoners, we had maybe 5,000 in the whole town. But this radio station, I'm asking you, and I, I understand the gap between us and ages, I'm asking you to go back in time to the 1950s. And World War II is just over. There are a lot of veterans coming back to school. This is this tiny school in a backward part of the state. It has this little radio station. Radio stations are controlled by the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. And the Federal Communications Commission has rules for over the airways commercial stations. They did then and they do now. This station was the lowest wattage allowed by the Federal Communications System uh, Commission, 250 watts. 250 watts would get you just about to the city limits and remember how small Huntsville is, the most allowed by the FCC at that time and remains true to this day was 50,000 watts. New York had 50,000 watt stations, Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles. Huntsville, being tiny, had the lowest level allowed by the FCC. 
My journalism teacher, in a desperate effort to keep me in school, among the jobs he got me, one job was working at the service station, another job was working at uh, uh, waiting tables at the local cafe, and he got me this job at the radio station. I'm asking you to go back in time. This radio station was partly owned by and run by one person. He was the only person at the radio station. Pastor Ted Lott was his name. I owe him a lot. He's now deceased. But Pastor Lott um, had retired from the ministry but wanted to get back in the ministry. He was running this radio station, but the FCC requires the radio station to be on every day, 6 o'clock in the morning, around to midnight, seven days a week. Those are the rules. Pastor Lott wanted to go get back into the ministry, wanted to hire somebody to keep the radio station on the air Saturdays and Sundays so he, Pastor Lott, could do the Lord's work. So he hired me at 40 cents an hour uh, to keep the radio station on the air. I was relieved on my knees with our Father who art in heaven to have gotten this job because it meant the difference between my being able to stay in school and not being able to stay in school. So the first weekend we, we tried this, the very first weekend I worked there, all I had to do was show up at 6 o'clock in the morning, be there at 12 o'clock at night, uh, and keep the radio station on the air. Monday morning came after my first weekend, and I came in to see Pastor Lott uh, in his office. And I said, Pastor Lott, this last weekend went well for me, and I want you to know I appreciate this job very much, but there is a problem. He wheeled around in the swivel chair and said, hold it right there, son. If you are here to complain that our pay for you does not meet the federal minimum wage standards, I am here to tell you that federal law ain't never applied in East Texas and ain't going to start now. <laughs> and I said to him, no, Pastor, that's not the problem. The problem is I get here at 6 o'clock in the morning, I work around midnight two days in a row, there's no place open in town to eat, the college dormitory and cafeteria all closed down, and I'm, I'm famished by the time we get around around 5.30 or 6 o'clock on each day. He understood the problem, and while it may strike you as strange, even weird, this was not unusual at these small, kick-down radio stations at the time. We worked out the following arrangement. Every Saturday and Sunday at 6 p.m., I was to put on a recorded program. We didn't have, certainly in East Texas, we didn't have audio tape at the time. Uh, these programs came in very large vinyl discs. Perhaps you've even seen them whole records. Big vinyl disc, half-hour complete program. The deal was I was to put this program, but 6 o'clock would come, I'd put the disc on the, the turntable, get the program started, and then I was to hop in the KSAM mobile unit, which was a 1937 Plymouth pickup truck, um, get myself to the local Dairy Queen on Highway 75, which is only about two and a half miles away, um, get a hamburger and a milkshake and come back and, before the program was over. This is the second weekend I worked at the station. Uh, six o'clock on Saturday came. I put the big long play record on. This particular program, no surprise, featured Pastor Lott's itinerant preacher brother from down at Del Rio, Texas. And the program consisted that he was to do a little guitar picking, little hymn singing, little scripture quoting, little sermonizing. That was the program. I put it on, got it started, got in the mobile unit, went down to the Dairy Queen on Highway 75, and I got a bad break. I got there, and there was a new freshman girl that I had not had an opportunity to chat up. <laughs> <laughs> if 
Her name was Mary Sue Strammer. And uh, she had the kind of looks where pickup trucks not only stop, but they stop and back up. <laughs> so um, Mary Sue was there. And so I said to myself, well, you know, I think I'll just have my hamburger and milkshake here kind of quickly and talk to Mary Sue. And we'll listen to the diesel trucks go by on Highway 75, always big entertainment in Huntsville. So I got plenty of time here, and so things are going pretty well. Uh, I've been there about 20 minutes, and the phone rang. To this day, any of you who live in a small town or small community, everybody knows everybody else's voice on the phone. Mary Sue put her hand over the phone, and she said, Damn, it's Pastor Lot, and he does not sound to be in a very ministerial frame of mind. <laughs> and sure enough, he wasn't. I could tell because he was talking through his teeth. He said, Young Rather. Have you heard our radio station any time in the last 20 minutes? I said, no, Pastor Lott. I told the white lie. I said, there's a long line here at the Dairy Queen, and I just now have my milkshake and my hamburger, but I'm headed back. He said, good, you get back and fix it, and you were fired. Click, he slammed down the phone. I was terrified. Leapt out to the mobile unit, cranked up the truck, turned on the radio station, and there was Pastor Lott's itinerant preacher brother saying, go to hell, go to hell. Go to hell. Go to hell. Go to hell. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately for me, the record had gotten stuck. It was the wrong place. Now again, any of you from a small town, I doubt many of you are, any from a small town know what 20 minutes of go to hell on local radio stations. Fortunately for Dan Rather, Pastor Lott was a forgiving man and let him stay on at that small Huntsville radio station for the remainder of his time in school. Dan Rather continued telling the group of Fordham students how his journalism career began, and he even choked up a bit when he discussed being under the tutelage of one teacher, Hugh Cunningham. Dan Rather said that Hugh taught him an invaluable lesson about the importance of journalism, which came in handy when he received a mysterious phone call about a suspicious fire in a segregated section of his Texas town. It led to one of his first big stories. Journalism is important. It's, a, it's the... It's the opportunity, if you can make it, to be involved in something bigger than yourself. That journalism at its best counts. It counts for something when done right. But he, he taught, he preached, he hassled day after day about you must be a committed and concerned journalism, journalist. That he considered that to be a redundancy. That if you were a journalist worthy of the name, it wasn't an option. You had to be, you must be, concerned and committed. Now with that in my 18, 19, 20-year-old brain, taught every day, at the radio station, after I'd been there a while, I'd been there a couple of years, we had uh, very little live programming, but we did have some live programming. Remember that Texas in those days, I am sorry to say, and East Texas particularly, this was a segregated society, uh, institutionally segregated all the way through. Small town, typical southern, southwestern small town. Africa, those of African-American heritage lived on one side of town, others lived on the other. At any rate, I, we had a, uh, what was called in the terminology of that day, a black group that came in on Wednesday nights. They did gospel singing live. I set up the microphone. These guys would get around, it was sponsored by the local funeral home to show you what things were like in those days. 
There were two funeral homes in town. There was one for whites, and there was one for everybody else. So the African-American funeral home sponsored this sing-along, uh, hymn singing on Wednesday night. And I occasionally would sit in and sing with them. Uh, not very well. But anyway, I made friends with some of the men. Now, there comes, uh, there was a fire on the quote, wrong side of the tracks. Big fire, house burned down, uh, three people died. There was a, uh, a middle-aged, I would say 35, 38 year old woman. All three victims were African Americans. There was an older woman, uh, her mother, and there was a baby. All three died in the fire. Keep in mind, we're in the 50s, we're in a small town, backwoods area, two policemen in the whole town, the police chief and the assistant police chief. They were chiefs of themselves. <laughs> they investigated the fire, and uh, they concluded this was an accidental fire, and people had died in fire too bad. Uh, somehow another house had caught fire. I got an anonymous telephone call at the radio station. Uh, and it was, I could tell by his accent, it was somebody from, quote, the wrong side of the tracks. He said, Dan, you should look into this fire over on uh, Elmo Street. Uh, because I can tell you that when the bodies got to the funeral home, there were bullets in two of the bodies. So I said to myself, and then eventually said to him, well, what am I supposed to do about that? He said, well, just think about it. Uh, even I could recognize this as a potential story. So anyway, I looked into it. It was true. Uh, that they were, it, with the two women, uh, bullets were taken out of the body. I actually saw the, the bullets. Uh, so I came back to the radio station and I told Pastor Lott, who, who was a dedicated journalist himself, in addition to being a preacher, he'd been trained as a journalist, worked in newspapers, good. And I told Pastor Lott uh, what I'd found. He got a grave look on his face and he said, Dan, um, that's very interesting, but among other things, for the health of your future here, I think we sh probably should just forget this. Now, I'm not being self-serving, but Phil, Professor Cunningham's talk of a journalist has to be committed, has to be concerned, uh, concerned. he has to dig deep, all of those things. I said to Pastor Lott, well, that doesn't exactly set quite right with me, I'm going to work on it. Anyway, I worked on the story, it was very clear. One, this was a case of arson. Two, uh, that the two women had bullet holes in them. The baby was unfortunately what the military might call collateral damage. So when I got what I had together, I came back to Pastor Lott and said, you know, I really think we ought to put this on the air. He said something along the lines, well, Dan, I admire that and I appreciate that, uh, but I would think very carefully about doing it. Uh, because not everybody in town is going to be pleased if you report this story. Um, so I put it on the air. Now, before I put it on the air, Pastor Lott uh, suddenly had an appointment in Conroe, Texas, which is about 100 miles away. It would take him away for about two days. He didn't want to be around when this story got on. Now, I'm not the hero of this piece. Uh, the uh, state police and the Texas Rangers came into the case. They eventually found out what, that it was a case of arson was a double murder. Uh, it turned out that there was a, a very prominent white man on the right side of the tracks who had, and I recognize I'm talking to students at basically a Catholic university, but we're all adults here, 
This was a case of a prominent white man who was having an affair with a, a, a African-American woman on the wrong side of the track. She lived with her mother and a small baby. Uh, it had kind of run its course, and so he decided to get rid of her. And he was tried and sent to prison for life. But I'm not the hero of that story. The reason I tell you that story is that if you're committed, if you're concerned, if you're dedicated to be a journalist of integrity, not only can you find out things that need to be found out, but you can be part of something bigger than yourself, in this case, justice. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. While speaking at Fordham University recently, newsman Dan Rather challenged students to uphold justice, integrity, commitment, and passion, especially if they wanted careers in journalism. But he also offered a warning about the power and pull of the press. To be a journalist worthy of the name, you have to be committed and concerned. To be a journalist worthy of the name, and also, I think, to make it in the intensely competitive environment, particularly in American journalism today, you have to burn with a hot, hard flame to want to do it. There are plenty of professions that you can go into, and you don't have to burn with a very hot flame to do it. I'm here to bear witness, to testify to you, that in journalism, you have to burn with a hot, hard flame. One, it's very hard to get a foot in the door with the first job. Two, it's extremely poor pay, particularly at the lower levels. Yes, I've been very lucky and very blessed, and you can say, well, easy for big time former anchorman to say, but I've been there. It's at least as true today as it's ever been, that if you don't burn to do it, I would say almost be addicted to doing it, then you probably ought to look for something else to get into. I want to say to you today, journalism students, ask yourself, do you burn with a hot, hard plane to do it? Or say to yourself, I don't feel that, but I think I could develop that. Then you should go ahead. You should proceed. If not, you better be thinking about at least a backup and probably getting into something else. I can't emphasize too much. You have to really want to do it. Once you get a toehold into it, if you're burning with that hard, hard flame and you once get into it, here's a warning. It is more addictive than crack cocaine. <laughs> Dan Rather encouraged that group of Fordham students to do what he does and read a lot. He also encouraged them to develop the craft of writing all while striving for balance. One of the things I got out of little Sam Houston, remember this school has about as much ivy on it as your average McDonald or Burger King. <laughs> they did not teach the classics. But my journalism professor, Hugh Cunningham, took the view. He said, listen, you, the, the Chicago Great Book Series, I don't know whether you know it, it was a big breakthrough in higher education, came out, I think, about 1949. It was the talk of the academic world. The Chicago Great Book Series is about, I think, 31, 32 books. And it begins with Homer, runs all through Thucydides, right on up uh, to modern authors. And he, he said, those of you in journalism, I want you to have read some in each one of the Chicago Great Book Series. Did I do it? No. But he instilled enough fear in me that I, I did dabble in it, got into some things, uh, like Dostoevsky a lot, probably read the whole book Dostoevsky, like Homer, but didn't read everything. But I digress. I want to 
I'm going to get in your, your head up here. If you're going to be a journalist, you've got to learn to write, you've got to dedicate yourself to a lifetime of improving yourself as a writer, you've got to read, and you've got to read seriously. You've got to read newspapers, you've got to read on the internet, you've got to read magazines, and yes, more than just once in a while, you have to read books. As a working journalist, I would say from age 23 or 24, uh, I got out of college when I was 20, 21 plus. From that time on, I have, sometimes it takes forcing yourself to do it. Uh, I have read, and this is not braggadocio because I'll tell you in a minute why I know that. I've tried to read two books a week, every week, since I've been about 23 or 24 years old. You're saying to yourself, wait a minute, this guy is giving me a line here. Well, check it out. It's true. Now, it's humbling for me because I'm married uh, to a fellow Texan, my wife, uh, Fighting Heart, Jeannie Grace Goble. She reads about 135 books a year, uh, which is uh, each my two pair. But <laughs> take it for whatever it's worth. I'll give you a guarantee that as time goes along, it'll be worth it. If you, if you think about it and absorb it, got to learn to write, got to dedicate yourself to a lifetime of improving your writing, and you absolutely, positively must read and keep on reading. Spend as much time as you can of making yourself, giving yourself, making yourself a deeper person. As a person and as a student, to be a well-rounded student, to be a student of depth. Don't just read what's assigned to read. You can say, my God, Mr. Rather, my assignments for reading every week are so heavy. You're talking about reading extra stuff. Yes, I am talking about reading stuff. I want to inspire you to go the extra time, take the extra time, make the extra effort to read what you don't have to read. The goal is to come out of here as, as well-rounded, as well-educated, with analytical skills as you possibly can. Veteran newsman Dan Rather took time to offer advice to the group of aspiring journalists, saying there's no substitution for preparation and rehearsing. He also used a fellow veteran journalist as an example the students should follow. The master then, uh, there have been more than one master, but a master was the late Charles Carroll. Uh, I'm not saying this patronizing, most of you are probably too young to remember him, but Charles Carroll was one of the best writers for television uh, that has ever existed. And I learned this from him. When I worked at the local station, I didn't do it of letting that we were in film in those days, it wasn't videotape, speak to me. When I got to CBS, and I finally got to CBS, and I remember the first day I walked in there, uh, that I walked with legends of Charles Collingwood, Eric Severide, uh, Richard C. Hodlett, yes, Ed Murrow. Um, frankly, I thought it was pretty good. Truth is, I had anchored at a major market. We brought the station from third to first in television. And I wouldn't say that I thought I was hot stuff, but I probably did. When I got to CBS, it was a humbling experience. I took a look at a Charlie Carroll script and said, oh my God, I can't, I can't come in within three area codes of writing this well. Take a look at a Charles Collingwood script. I know these names may not mean much. Collingwood was one of the original Murrow boys, rightfully legendary co correspondent himself. Take a look at these scripts. And I said, well, I've got to raise my game and I've got to raise it a lot. Dan Rather also offered advice and examples of how persistence pays off. I'll give you a recent example. We talked about this in the car when my friend 
Jasmine and um, Cherise, who works with me, that we had a producer, um, Andrew Glazer, terrific reporter, very experienced AP guy. We wanted to go to uh, Palestine, to the uh, Palestinian West Bank, which is Israeli military occupied territories, you know. And for a lot of reasons, and this is not critical of the Israelis, uh, it wasn't a, a good time for the Israelis for us to go to the West Bank. Uh, so Andrew makes application uh, to the consulate here in New York, and they were very friendly, but basically said no. He called them no fewer than two times every day, and some days more than that. He went over there about once every three days, just showed up and he'd say, oh my God, not you again, Mr. Glazer. The answer is no. He said, I know the answer is no, but I just thought I'd come by and let's have a cup of coffee. Relentless. You have to have, be persistent. That particularly in journalism, particularly being a reporter, you have to be persistent. I'm a believer in that quote, which I can't quote with rate of it, says, listen, we all know people who are extremely talented, who don't make it. We all know people who are extremely well-educated, who don't make it for one reason or another. Uh, that persistence will beat education and talent every time in a showdown. Now, the ideal is to have talent, uh, to be well-educated, and be persistent. But as a, as a life code, if you will, certainly a professional code, I subscribe to persistence. Dan Rather left CBS in 2005 and is currently managing editor and anchor of the TV news magazine Dan Rather Reports on HDNet cable channel. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarki and Cityscaper next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. We've shared a lot in the 24 years we've been meeting here each evening. And before I say goodnight this night, I need to say thank you. Thank you to the thousands of wonderful professionals at CBS News, past and present, with whom it's been my honor to work over these years. And a deeply felt thanks to all of you who have led us into your homes night after night. It has been a privilege, and one never taken lightly. Not long after I first came to the anchor chair, I briefly signed off using the word courage. I want to return to it now in a different way to a nation still nursing a broken heart for what happened here in 2001, and especially to those who found themselves closest to the events of September 11th. To our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in dangerous places. To those who have endured the tsunami, and to all who have suffered natural disasters, and who must now find the will to rebuild. To the oppressed and to those whose lot it is to struggle in financial hardship or in failing health, to my fellow journalists in places where reporting the truth means risking all, and to each of you, courage. For the CBS Evening News, Dan Rather reporting. Good night. <laughs>